Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 4. This is the psalm that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. On the 15th of October, uh, 1555, Nicholas Ridley was preparing himself for the next day. He was in Oxford, and he was going to be burnt at the stake for his preaching the truth of the gospel. On that October night, that was to be his last night on earth, uh, his brother came to visit him uh, in prison and offered to stay with him those last hours. But Nicholas Ridley refused, saying that he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his life. That's at one end of the spectrum, isn't it? Been able to lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He knew that even the flames could not tear him free from the grip of God's love and the security of eternity. The other end of the scale, you fly back from one side of America to to here, and you find yourself struggling with jet lag and lying awake in the small hours of the night and thinking about what you have to do the next day, and you think, well, I can't afford to be awake. Or maybe there's many other times you've felt that that sense. Maybe there are pressing things, and they've been turning over in your mind, and they're not at the trivial end of the scale of jet lag, and they're not at the being burnt at the stake end of the scale, but They're somewhere in the middle, and the circumstances of your day or your life in that moment are crowding in on you, and you struggle uh, to sleep. Your mind is racing. Your heart may even be pounding. Perhaps you're thinking of the time at which you need to get up, and you're saying to yourself, I can't afford to be awake like this. I need to get up in three hours. I need to get up in two and a half hours. I need to get up in two hours. Why am I still awake? Or maybe it's even just getting to sleep. The circumstances you're in are so strong and so tumultuous that your mind is racing, your heart is pounding, and you have a sense of panic. Psalm 4 is about having a confidence and peace and joy amidst circumstances that might otherwise be crushing Life is in chaos for David. We're not particularly sure of the exact circumstances of the psalm. If it's tied to Psalm 3, as some writers think, it may be tied to this time then when David is fleeing from his son Absalom. David's family life has disintegrated. His daughter had been assaulted by another son. That son had been uh, killed by Absalom another son of David's. Absalom is thinking, in for a penny, in for a pound, we'll take the throne as well. And now he's pursuing his father, David, and David is on the run. He may be in a cave, and he's got all his followers with him. And they're asking questions, and some of them are saying, who's going to show us any good? Because the people are turning against you. Who can help us? Where can we go for help? And 
David is lying down to sleep. He's saying, I lie down and sleep in peace. If it's not those precise circumstances, even as we look within the psalm, we find that David is in distress. Verse 1, translated here, give me relief from my distress. And that word stress is picturesque um, in the Hebrew. It, it means to be squeezed, to be caught in a vice, and just to be having pressure from both sides coming in on you. That's David's experience. If you felt like that, life squeezing you and you, you think, I've nowhere to go. And some of the things that seem to be causing David trouble are that he's being taunted whether it's his kingly glory in verse 2 or his delight in God. That's maybe a way of referring to God. My glory might refer to God. How long will you turn my glory into shame? You're mocking my God. You know, you're saying, where's your God to deliver you now? And these people around seem to be living in a complete land of make-believe. They think they're on the up. They think that they are God's chosen people. They think whatever it is they're thinking, David says, you're, you're living a lie. You're living a lie. And he's, this is the pressure he feels, wherever it comes from. And I, I like the fact that we're not given specific circumstances, because then we would say it only applies in those circumstances. But this is a song for all God's people whatever our circumstances, so that we can have peace and joy under pressure. And we want to note four things. First of all, David's cry. David's cry. Answer me when I call to you. Wow, isn't that bold? Isn't that confident? And you see the confidence in verse 3, the, the second part of the verse. No, he says at the start of the verse and then the end, the Lord will hear when I call to him. It's important and it's vital that we cry out to God in those moments when we are squashed by the circumstances of life or our minds are racing and we have no peace. Because sometimes, well, it sounds obvious that we should cry out to God, but sometimes is it not the case that we're so caught up in our problem that we are busy replaying it in our minds and going over it and over it ourselves and trying to find a solution ourselves that we forget to cry out to God. Or other times, we are so... It's been going on so long that we've given up praying about it and crying out to God for help. David says, cry out cry out. And there's three aspects here uh, that encourage us to cry. God's character, first of all. Oh, my righteous God. Or the way uh, many English versions have it, it could be translated another way, and the way that our psalm book has it, uh, oh, my, oh, God of my righteousness, or the way it's translated in our psalm book. God, yes, he, oh, give an answer when I call. God of my righteousness. But it's really the same thing either way. David is saying, he's talking about a righteousness that God gives. God is both generous and just. What God demands, He provides. God is righteous and demands that we are righteous. 
And David says, oh God, you're the God of my righteousness. You have given me righteousness. And so God's character is both righteous and generous. And David comes to God and says, hear me, the God who always does what's right. Life is treating me unjustly or unfairly. Where do you go? Well, you go to the God who always will make things right for his people. And he is a God who gives righteousness. So that shows that he's generous. And if he has given us the greatest thing that we need so that we can stand before him in the day of judgment, how much more will he make things right for us? God's character. That should give us confidence. God's record should give us confidence. The next part of verse 1. Again, many English versions, in fact, most of them translate it slightly differently. The, the Hebrew can be translated two ways. Either give me relief from my distress or you have given me relief from my distress. And that's the way our Sambuk has it. You have relieved me in distress. I think it's better to take it that way. David is basing his present prayer on God's past action. He's he's coming to God and saying, not only is it in your character, but it's, it's in my history. You've done this before. You have set me, and the Hebrew again is wonderfully picturesque. It's, it's saying here, you could translate it this way, you have set me in a large space when I was being squeezed. Dale Ralph Davis translates it this way. He says, in tight places, you made space for me. Not lovely. Have you experienced that? Well, I'm sure you've experienced that, that feeling of being squeezed by everything, that sense of claustrophobia. Even sometimes there's so much going on in your head that there's too many people around you and you say, just, just give me space. Well, David is coming to God and saying, God, you have given me space, not from your presence. You, God hasn't taken a step back, but he's pushed the circumstances back or the sense of pressure back for David. He says, you've done it before. Answer me again, he cries. I know you can do it. You've done it before. And then the third reason he has is not simply God's character, not simply God's record, but God's relationship with David. Verse 3, know that the Lord is addressing his enemies here. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord will hear when I call to him. He's saying, I belong to God. I'm God's man. I'm one of his people. I know he'll hear me. And it all flows out of that. David has confidence in his relationship with God, not because David is perfect, but because God has given David righteousness, the way, the means by which we can relate to God. And that we can come into God's presence and say, answer me. What right have we to do that? We're sinners. Ah, but God is my righteousness through Jesus Christ. And I've been adopted into God's family and I can come to my Father and say, answer me. Lovely. David's cry. We can cry like this. We can cry like this. We should cry like this. 
Are you needing to cry to God in prayer? Be encouraged to do so. Or perhaps I need to ask, have you a right to call to God in prayer like this? Because this right belongs to His children who can come so boldly into His presence and say, answer me. We'll see in the psalm this evening, David saying, I called to you in my distress, and you heard from heaven, and you came. And then at the end of the psalm, he says, they cried to you, but you were silent. His enemies cried to God at a time, but God was silent. Have you a right? It's only in Christ, those who have put their trust in Christ, who can come so boldly to God and cry out. David's cry. Secondly, David's challenge. There seems to be a a bit of a flow in the psalm. David already really stops praying for himself at the end of verse uh, 2, at the end of verse 1 even, and he starts to address people around him. David, it would seem, has found peace already. It becomes clearer at the end of the psalm. But it seems in this middle bit he's concerned for the people around him. And he addresses the people around him so they will find peace. It's as if his followers around him are struggling with one of three problems. Some of them are angry. Some of them have given up going to God. And some are, are just despairing. And so he says to one group of people, he says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. David wants these people to have peace. So he says, guard your heart. He says, don't be angry. Or sorry, he says, in your anger, do not sin. He says, don't sin in your anger. There are things that we are right to be angry about. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And there are injustices and there are unfairnesses in life that we can be angry about. But sometimes that anger spills over into resentment towards God, and bitterness towards people. And David warns his followers, his guard your heart. He says, when you lie on your bed at night, stop muttering to yourself about, I'll do this and I'll do that, and uh, they said this and this happened. Do you find that happening? And anger boiling up like a volcano ready to explode? David says, guard your heart. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. It's a way to peace amid circumstances that cause us trial. He turns to another group of people in verse 5, and he says, keep worshiping. He says to one group of people, guard your heart. To another group of people, he says, keep worshiping. Offer right sacrifices. Some sacrifices were to deal with sin. But it was much broader than that. Offering sacrifices was how you came to God. You came and you offered sacrifices for sin. You offered sacrifices for thank offerings. You offered sacrifices for fellowship offerings. And I think what David is saying is here is some of the people have given up coming to God in worship. And David says to them, keep worshiping. 
Have you experienced that sometimes in pressure? Another Christian comes to you and says, well, how are you getting on in your Bible reading? And you say, well, I've stopped. How's your prayer life? Well, well, I haven't been praying. And David says to his people, keep worshiping. Now, they had to go and offer sacrifices, and they had to do all of that. We are to keep worshiping. We don't have to offer the sacrifices, but we are to keep coming to our God in worship, in confessing our sin, in thankfulness, in spending time with Him. And that will help bring us peace and joy under pressure. Keep worshiping. And then he turns to a third group of people, or it may be the one group of people who have all three problems. Who knows our hearts? And he says to this group of people, he says, trust God's way. Trust in the Lord, he says. Trust in the Lord. A word to the despairing. Keep trusting. David's perhaps in a cave being hunted by his son. And people are saying, oh, how can this possibly turn around? Everyone's against us. David says, keep trusting. He says to you this morning, keep trusting. No circumstance that isn't for your good will come to you. No circumstance has happened to you that won't be redeemed if you're one of Christ's people. Do you see what he says? He doesn't actually say, trust God's way. He says, trust the Lord, the God who has tied himself to his people by promise, by covenant. The God who has tied his reputation to rescuing his people and redeeming them and working everything for good, he says, trust him. There's his challenge. Perhaps we need reminded, not simply to cry out to God in prayer, but we need reminded of these challenges. Or perhaps we need reminded of the confidence that can be ours as we trust God, as we keep relating to Him, as we don't let our circumstances overwhelm us with frustration or anxiety or resentment or bitterness or anger. And thirdly, we see David's confidence. David's confidence. David has confidence where many others are despairing. Verse 6, many are asking, who can show us any good? And David is confident. Again, there's three things. He's confident of abundant favor. Abundant favor. Look at what he says in verse 6. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O God. Again, it's, it's vivid. The imagery is, a, is of going in to see an emperor. And you don't know will he receive you with favor or not. Imagine Esther going in to see Xerxes. And she goes in in fear and trepidation. She's wondering, will he, will he hold out the scepter to me? Will he turn to me and will his face be thunderously dark? And will he look to me with a glare and say, what are you doing here? Or will he turn round and his face light up? And will he beam with delight and hold out the scepter? That was Esther's fear. And David is saying to God, let your face shine on us. And he's not just praying this. He's quoting back to God what God promised. 
God had said to Aaron, My people, you're to tell them that this is how my face is to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. God had said to Aaron, You are to tell my people that's the way it is. And then how does it go on? The Lord turn his, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. I'll lie down and sleep in peace, David says. Because this is what you do for your people. He's confident of God's abundant favor. He's confident that God is a God who pours out his delight on his people, that his face shines on his people, that he keeps his promises to give peace to his people. You will keep in perfect peace, Isaiah would say. Paul would hear God say, my grace is sufficient for you. David had confidence in God's delight that God's face would shine upon him. Are you, con- are you convinced? If you're a Christian this morning, are you convinced that God delights in you? Are you convinced of that? Think on that in your bed this evening. The circumstances of your life might say to you, how could God delight in you? But you and I are not good at reading circumstances but we are good at reading the printed words on the page. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Are you convinced that God delights in you? Second thing, in David's confidence, he's confident of abundant joy. Verse 7, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. There will be some this week who will be celebrating their leaving cert results, and they will be celebrating, and it will be the happiest moment of their lives after the pressures of the exams, after the, the worry of the last few weeks waiting for the results, they will celebrate like they've never celebrated before. That's what David imagines. It's the imagery of harvest time. They've been tightening their belts for a number of weeks. Uh, and then they can eat to excess and enjoy it and feast. And joy is overflowing. And David says, I can beat that. I've got joy that beats your happiest moments. And he says this on the run, in a cave, in the midst of his trouble. Because we have something that our circumstances can't take away. And David doesn't say, you will give me joy, but you have filled my heart. Oh, we know that there were times he lamented and cried out to God. But there were still the roots in his heart of the tree of joy that he could go to and pluck the fruit of joy from and eat that fruit because nothing can take that away. 
You have given my heart greater joy. How has God done that? In our salvation, in our relationship, in our adoption, in our justification, in our promised glorification, in the certainty of all of these things. We are His. And He is our loving sovereign who works all things for the good of His people. We can have abundant joy. And that gives us hope. Are you convinced of the joy that is yours? Oh, it's easy for that conviction to disappear. Two bad days and it's gone in my life. Half a bad day and it's gone in my life. Come out and find a flat tire and the joy is gone. No, no, it's not. The tree's still there. But I need to stop looking at the thing that brings the sorrow and go to the tree and eat the fruit of joy. Because God has given us reason to rejoice that nothing can take away and He has promised about the hard times in Psalm 90 that we can have confidence for as many days as He has afflicted us, He will make us glad. In fact, you know, it's as if Moses was trying to think of, of the fairness of the thing. Well, Lord, we've had so many hard days. Give us so many happy days. And God says, oh, no, no. I have an eternity of joy for you. Confident, convinced of abundant joy. And that will enable us to, to rest at peace. And then thirdly, confident of abundant provision. Verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It's not just protection. I think it's provision because what keeps us awake? It's not just worry about safety. It's worry about 101 other things. How will this work out? How will that work out? What about this? What will I do if this happens and then that happens and then the other? And <sighs> David says, I'm away to bed. And I'll take whatever sleep comes. This isn't necessarily a promise of sleep. This is a promise of God's provision so that we can lie in peace and take the sleep that God gives without having to worry. It's as if David's saying, I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious about my circumstances, for he only allows what is for my best. So I'm going to sleep. Like Nicholas Ridley slept the night before he was executed. Are we convinced that our God abundantly provides. One of the things that struck me in holidays is that we really ought, if we don't write it down, we ought to log them in our minds the ways God provides for us. I've said it before, but I have to say it again. God's providence is astonishing. Sometimes it's really clear. Sometimes it's much harder to see but we need to get good at seeing the clear stuff and recording it because that says to us, my God abundantly provides. And whatever's happening, I can go and lie down in peace and take sleep because he's got it covered. 
David's confidence. And then fourthly and finally, David's Savior. David's Savior. Now, perhaps you might think, well, that's okay for David. He has this trust, but I don't. What right have I to have this confidence? Well, before this was David's song, this song was written by the Holy Spirit for Jesus Christ. It's his song. He knew what it was to have his glory derided. He knew what it was to be mocked. He knew isolation. He knew what it was for people to lie about him, to be deluded. He knew what it was to call out, Answer me! And yet, he says to us, I know the delight of my Father. I know that there is a joy to be had that is far greater than any feast this world provides, because I have tasted that joy. And he knew what it was like to sleep, put his head on a pillow in a boat in a storm. While his disciples panicked that they would all die, he slept, not simply because he was really tired, but because his father had the storm under control. And he wasn't going to let his son perish. His father had it under control. He even could lie down with his head on the tomb's pillow and sleep in death, confident that his father would raise him. You say, oh, that's okay. David had trust and Jesus had trust, but how can I? That's fine for them, but what about me? Well, I want you to think of one moment as we finish in Christ's life when this psalm proved untrue. And maybe you say, ah, now I've got you. This psalm isn't always true. That's right. There was a moment in his life when he cried out, Answer me, O God! Heaven was silent. There was a moment when he said, Sorrow has overwhelmed me to the point of death. There was a time when he had nowhere to lay his head because he was up all night being betrayed and being whipped and being beaten and being mocked and his glory brought to shame and put on trial unjustly and beaten again. And then that whole night just kept on going until the next day when they nailed him to a cross and they mocked and taunted him And he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the light and the delight of the Father was hidden from the Son. And the light of his face was cloaked in darkness at the cross. Why? So that we could say that second line, O God of my righteousness. God the Son became you and me. He took your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness on Himself on the cross. And He cried out and was unanswered. And all His joy was gone and His night was shattered so that for us 
we would have righteousness so that we could cry out, answer me, and God would answer, so that we would have a joy that no trouble could take away, so that we could lie down and sleep in peace. You see, He stepped into our shoes so that we could step into His shoes. He sang our song of abandonment, of sadness, of that sleeplessness, so that we could sing His song of the Father's delight, of the Son's joy, and of peace. David's Savior, this is His song, and it's your song if you're one of Christ's people. Because of Christ, you can say, answer me with all the right of the Son of God. You can look forward with confidence to the face of God shining on you with all the confidence of the Son of God. You can have joy the Son of God has. And you can lie down and sleep knowing that God will provide for you as much as He would provide for His own dear Son. Is that not astonishing? And whatever sleep comes, we can lie down in peace knowing that our loving Lord has it all under control. Sometimes it can be hard work to to bring our minds to that point But that's why we cry out to God, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, there are things you might be angry about and you want to blame God for, but instead of that you need to heed David's words and offer right sacrifices, not of your good behavior, but of Christ, and come to Him and say, will you be my sacrifice? Will you be forsaken so that I can be heard? Will you take my sorrow, my eternal sorrow, so that I can have eternal joy? Will you lay your head on the pillow of a tomb so that I can lay my head on the pillow of your Father's lap so that I can have peace? If you don't know Christ, will you do that today? Let's pray. O Lord God, we come to this beautiful psalm that is filled with such incredible things, a startlingly bold approach to you that is not arrogant or rude, but it is the heartfelt cry of a child to a father. Thank you that you Allow us to do that. And we come to the wonderful conclusion at the end that has such great riches piled up for your people. And, O Lord God, we praise you and we thank you. And, Lord, we we pray that you would help us in those times when we are overwhelmed, when our minds are fixed on what is close to us, that we would see your character, what you've done in the past, and that we would call to you, O God, the one who has supplied righteousness, 
so that we would find peace and joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.